Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. Jack Morrow here. Second mission in a month, and just two of the old gang have posted recordings. I was never much of a talker, but the silence is, uh... Well, never mind. It's not important. Earlier last week, Control sent me a series of coordinates that led to some mountain in Utah, just south and east of King's Peak, with the usual text message. The cave at this location has been connected to spelunker disappearances. Local rangers are reluctant to investigate. The mission? Go to the coordinates. Discover the fate of the spelunkers and why the rangers won't look into it. And report back. Control would not respond to my explanations. That this was outside my stomping grounds. Territory matters. I don't know anything about the local area, myths, or supernatural events. Curly Coray has the Utah, Black Hills, and Yellowstone territories. Mormons are notoriously tough to put down. I can't imagine him just disappearing. Transcript of the Bones of the Giants to follow. I'm no mountaineer, or rockhound, gymhound, or spelunker, or nature lover for that matter. Life in Missouri prepared me for weather best described as abusive. But that was in the moments I went outside. I don't like to go outside. I spent a week with a GPS, a tent, several pounds of beef jerky, and gallons of water until I reached the entrance to the cave. Several park rangers talked to me to express concern and recommend an easier trail that could be over in a day. It rained twice. I can't imagine what the other hikers thought of me, swearing at my tent and food and any animal looking at me. I must have been a sight by the time I stumbled into the cave. I can tell you the cave looked like a cool spring full of bathing nymphs who promised not to drown me. Well worth the trip, Control. It was time to get to work. I dropped my stuff in a pile at the entrance. No camp, no fire or anything. I didn't plan on staying for long if I had to run. I didn't want to take down my tent and prevent forest fires. The night will be safer than whatever is chasing me. Caves work the same in day or night anyway. This cave looked fresh to my uneducated eyes. The moss and shrubs didn't reach down into the revealed pit, and there weren't many pieces of non-rock debris within. I crouched down and examined the rocks, the moss cut off in a straight line. I took a deep breath, checking for fumes or smells. Nothing. 
The body is one of the best checks for whether something is wholesome or not. It's similar to forest survival. If the animals avoid it, then you should too. You can test things, but dying in the forest bleeding from your colon isn't high on my list of ways to die. The cave gave me shudders, but I couldn't tell whether or not the cave was itself evil. Something resided within the cave, or I just didn't want to go headfirst into a black hole. I led who knows where with who knows what. Probably a corpse or ten waiting for me to rot the eyes out of my head and then impregnate me with demon spawn. It's usually that third one. When it comes to monsters like the puppeteer I saw... They're part of a larger group called Ultra Terre. Otherworldly. I'm not a Latin scholar, and neither was the guy who coined the phrase, I shouldn't wonder. Your average vampire, werewolf, shuggeth, demon, mermaid, and pagan god are all varying types of Ultra Terre. The puppeteer was of Ultra Terre, and so was the thing in the children's hospital. They can be killed or banished, but they aren't natural to this world. The name's more about proper documentation than anything else. I only care about how to get rid of the night things. The unnatural has no place in the natural world. That's why they hide out in the dark places of the world, like this cave. That's why I hunt them down. For my descent, I took a couple flashlights, spare batteries, and flares. I was not going to lack for light in that night black crack. Besides all that, food, water, first aid kit, rope. I took the usual 1911, my eclectic collection of blades, and several sources and fuel supplies for fire. The crack in the ground measured uh, about ten feet long by four feet wide. I might curse the old Shawnee, but I appreciated the training now. The cave faced open sky, but that drop was only a yard down, give or take some inches. This gravelly path below wound down into the earth, maybe two or three feet tall at the widest point. I stretched, put on the spelunking gear, ropes, and all the light sources I could find a pocket for, and dove right in. I am always grateful for light. Diving into the depths of the earth is like dunking your head into tar. It doesn't take long to be in total, utter darkness. Then there's a walls closing in on you. The ground clutches at you, far less smooth than you think it should be. Sharp points rip through clothing and flesh alike. I'm not sure what spelunkers see in their sport. Psychos. The lot of them. The rocks within were gray, banded occasionally with red or yellow. When I say gravel underneath my stomach, I mean gravel. I practically rolled over a scree that acted more like thick sand than rocks or stones. I put my hands down into standing water, but they were just shallow pools, not deep, unending wells. I tried to avoid them, but soon I was fairly wet. I just had to hope I wouldn't develop a rash or flesh rot from some undiscovered disease. A few times I hit my light switch, fumbling around for a better position. Every time my mind changed from the investigation and the search for some sort of sign of the other spelunkers into a fearful scramble to turn on the light. 
I thought of nothing else. I was well beyond the barest glimmer of the sun. The darkness enveloped me, and I never saw anything in those moments. Even if I had time to adjust my eyes, nothing ever became visible. It was not shadow. The strange stuff left by blocking light refracted into many angles. It was an absence that never went away. When I left, it would be dark again, and only memory of me would be what I left on the tiny stones under my stomach. I left the gravel entrance, and the light revealed the larger cavern. It wasn't massive, like the Merrimack Caverns or some of the pictures I've seen of those caves of quartz in China. It reminded me of those... It reminded me of the front entrance of a house. Stalagmites and stalactites rose up in columns like a Greek temple. The channels for the drips carved deeply into the walls. I'd call them cracks, but I could see the flat rock behind them. I'm not sure how long it would take to put deep cuts through erosion of specks of water over the years, but it had to be millennia. I pulled myself out of the crack and stood on the gray, sloping surface. The weight above my head bent my shoulders, even if the ceiling was high enough that I couldn't touch it. I couldn't stand up straight. I growled and struggled, but the pressure wouldn't relent. How much weight lay above my head? How much power could the earth have brought to crush me? If the rocks above shifted but a little... At either hand were pools of water. I saw blind, white fish, only a little larger than minnows, wallowing within the shallows. A few crabs and tinier things floated within, sometimes nipping at the fish, other times being eaten by them. The skeleton floor picked at by yet smaller, blind denizens. Ahead of me, a blocky entrance waited. I took a moment to readjust my helmet and gear, checking for my gun and the first of my flashlights. I didn't feel safe. The angles were off for a natural formation. Sometimes white streaks could be seen behind the cracks on the columns of stone in front of me. Other times the erosion revealed lines I couldn't call natural. They were perfectly straight and parallel. Was the cave even natural? I examined the pools. Neither were square, but they were even with the walls and symmetrical with each other. The columns, too, four on each side, one forward of the other three. The Pueblo people didn't use columns like that, nor the Apache, Uti, or any other native tribe that came to mind. Most used wood and tents, not carved structures. I couldn't pry the rocks away from where I saw the straight lines. I found the first evidence of any other spelunkers, a candy bar wrapper in between two of the columns. Probably fell out of a pocket. Cave explorers hate litter, I'm told. A little bit more and I found scuff marks leading to the doorway. I nearly passed through, but I felt something press on me. It was a bubble of air. I put my finger to it and felt resistance, like puncturing the skin of a balloon, but there was no leak or pressure pushing back on me. The surface tension was perfect. I removed a glove and put the tip of my pinky through. No change in the currents, just an air bubble. Maybe it was a little drier than the cavern I stood in now. 
It was a solid minute before I got up the gumption to leave the cavern and pass the door. The empty hall stood nearly twenty feet tall, wide enough that I could lay down and not touch either wall. What sort of being made this, I didn't know. The proportions, massive and irregular, unnatural for a human like me, were now coming together as natural for something other. The door was meant for people, fifteen feet tall at least. I passed through. The hall was empty, abandoned. I pulled out my 1911. This was made by sapient, soulful hands. No denying it. My breaths came quicker, but felt more filling in this new atmosphere. Like it was a different time. A different air. I checked one room, then another. I loosened my helmet's neck straps. I had a flashlight in my hand anyway. I didn't want to suddenly start suffocating here. Each room was empty, far better preserved from time than their outside entrances. The cube rooms had windows of glass. They dripped down over themselves, not connecting the bottom from the top, but still holding out the outside. Limestone layered itself, half-merging with the glass. In one room I saw a trilobite pressed up against a pane, fossilized. The atmosphere grew thicker as I passed on deeper, examining piles of dust and discovering footprints within them. I found the trail of the disappeared cave explorers. I snorted as the still air started to move around me. Rot, the sickening smell of decay, reached me. I growled and readied myself. I no longer heard drips of water, but the creak and crack of my own coat, and the stones above me, the earth settling in on itself, or rippling from some unknown quake in a far distant land. My one goal was to confirm whether or not the cave dwellers were dead, and to see if it was through natural or unnatural causes. Not every supernatural event is caused by ghosts or some other monster. Past one empty door, then another, until I reached the end, where a massive portal stood open, slightly ajar, and rendered useless by the warped floor. I prepared myself. The smell wafted from beyond the pillar-like doors. Nothing but dust, fossilized shards of wood, and rusted metal imprinted in the walls. Useless. I couldn't even discern a pattern. I suppose an archaeologist would get more out of it, but there wasn't anything worth taking pictures of. I took a deep breath and turned the corner. Again, there was pressure between the rooms of air, kept in check by something I couldn't see or feel. I heard nothing. Saw nothing at first. Just the smell of death and decay. It was more than just new rot. It was old and musty jerky in the sun and bacteria and into its core of the smoked meat. There was softness, hardness, smoke, milk, maggots, and the rinds of oranges in the sun. I gagged and tripped on something I hoped was not a bone. I played my flashlights over it. It was a climbing axe, and it was covered in blood. I whipped my flashlight around looking for anything else. 
I stood in front of a jumbled pile of bones that reached far over my head, nearly touching the ceiling. Each body stretched five to twenty feet tall, their arms entwined, crushing them to each other. Some seemed like children, their heads out of proportion to their bodies. Others, adults, a few posed as if holding back something that threw them onto their friends and family. A few in the back were dressed in the barest tatter of robes and leather. Others were naked by choice or by time. But gold rings, necklaces, and jewels arrayed on their hands, feet, and neck. Their hands and feet held one too many fingers and toes each. The small bones were in disarray, and their jaws were open, and screams that still echoed in the night, their terror still more than palpable. This room had decorations, painted walls, and statues. Preserved by the atmospheric pressure I felt coming in, the statues depicted a mass of people with large foreheads and proud eyes. None had a hint of kindness. Each looked down on me. I felt like a sheep under shepherds who hated me and all my kind. Closer to the center, the bones twisted into each other like the drawings of M.C. Escher. They had climbed over each other to escape what had come for them. As they had rotted, the flesh became non-existent, and the skeletons settled down on each other. In the center of the pile, I saw a few smaller skeletons with fresh, modern clothes draping on them. I saw a few smaller bodies with fresh, modern clothes still clinging to them. The missing spelunkers. I saw one human body, almost recently dead, at the top. It moved like it breathed. I couldn't let it go without checking for vital signs. I climbed the mountain of giant bones and the dry, clean bones of the modern men until I reached the top. I got beside the breathing man and flipped him over to check his face, but he refused to budge. I put my back into it and forced him over. Stuck in his chest were five fingers and a thumb. The hand came with him, still stuck in his chest, still attached to the arm behind it. The bones were fresh glistening with moisture. Arteries and veins twisted from the fresh body into the skeleton and deeper into the pile. Cartilage and tendons were forming slowly and unevenly on the arm. The veins pulsed faster and faster as I stared. There was a pressure that beat out every second. The bones shifted, and a skull bigger than the rest emerged from the dark gray depths. One eye had regrown, bigger than my fist. The pupil twisted, rotating in its own socket until it turned on me. The light reflected from the orb, bright red, cracked and shining with a light that was beyond the flashlight. It took it, magnified the light beyond the laws of nature. It focused on me like a laser beam, and I fell back nerveless. I could not move. My helmet bounced off my head and rolled over until the massive mountain of bones was still illuminated. My hands and arms splayed out, and I could barely feel the flashlight in one hand and the gun in the other. The pressure on my body was lighter than I could describe. It was there, like a caress. It was a kind of, like... 
like a brush of the fingers against my soul. It wasn't a strike or a pressure. Something had slit a knife of infinite thinness into my back, slicing away the controls, nerves, and strength of my body with expert strokes. Darkness filled me as the skull pushed forward into the charnel house. Another arm freed itself from the piles. One hand kept inside the spelunker, still drawing out his flesh. The other reached out for me. I roared within my own head, fighting with everything I had, trying to break out. My body twitched. The gun fired off into the darkness. The bullet pinging onto the bone pile. I put all my efforts into flinging my arm to the right angle, sweat pouring down my forehead. The head started to loom, staring down on me. I saw the eye focus on me. The weight pressed onto my chest and I gasped for breath. I asphyxiated and choked on nothing. My eyes bulged from their sockets. The empty hand, the bones, like claws, reached towards me. My gun went off in my closed fist and the lights went out. Immediately the baleful glare lost me. Never have I been so glad for darkness. And I hope to never again. Darkness is the absence of light, and that's so rarely a good thing. I'm shocked it confounded the gigantic skeleton's eye. I got up and ran. The immense skeleton rustled against its bone prison, grinding and breaking them to pieces to escape. I heard sucking and clacking then. It got me with its hand. It wasn't more than a brush of a knuckle, but it sent me rolling shoulder overhead. I felt the climbing axe pierce my arm, and I grabbed it, pulling it out and praying I hadn't hit a vein. I saw nothing, but the hand reached down at me. It burned with the heat my soul felt. I swung the axe and smashed the butt of my pistol into the axe head. I heard a crack, and the heat fled. I got to my knees, scrambling to flee. Something hit the wall near me as I made the door. I could hear the clothes scrape the wall and fall on the floor. The meal had been finished. I nearly passed the air barrier when a red light washed over the doors and I heard the bass beat of a heart, impossibly large. I collapsed. It could see me. How I don't understand, but its heart gave light with every massive beat. It illuminated nothing but let the thing see me. I fell forward. Despair struck me like a hammer blow. My head passed the barrier, then my arms and chest. I gasped for breath, my movement restored. I groaned and roared, pulling my whole body outside the barrier. Whatever that was, it protected me. One of the skeleton claws, barely illuminated in the red light of a beating heart, gripped the door. It was at my heels. I ran before it could stick its eye through the door gap. I made it past the first air barrier and up into the crack in the wall. The heartbeat followed me. It was more than mine, like the creature's eye and will was more than mine. It hated that I lived, that I had a soul, and that I could love. It wanted me as raw materials to rebuild itself. It did not ask. It only took. I knew its intentions even if it did not speak. For my part, 
I knew its intentions even if it did not speak. For my part, I cursed that such creatures were once allowed to walk the earth. I remembered the native tales of giants, and the Nephilim, the flood. There was nothing good behind me, nothing that could be reasoned with. It wasn't like the puppeteer or the rouge or any of the other things I faced. It wasn't an evil building, it wasn't a possessed car, and it wasn't some ghost tooling around its old life. It was more... I don't feel bad running from it. I was justified running from it. I moved so fast that my lungs burned. I made it through the crack in quick time, not turning on my lights or fire. I pulled myself over the lip and ran for the hills. My gear was missing. What's more, when I staggered out of the trailhead, the park rangers acted very surprised. I ignored them. This isn't my circus. These weren't my monkeys. Thankfully, my car was still there, and the engine worked. I drove out of there and hit the first motel that looked clean. I'm scratched to hell, face to feet, and I think I fractured my wrist when I shot my 1911 from those weird angles. I'm not sure. I'm not going to seek medical attention until I hit Missouri. I have enough disinfectant, antibiotics, and bandages to deal with the worst of it. Fracture is going to be a problem, though. I can't do anything more here. I don't have the tools or the connections to handle it, or even collapse the tunnels, for that matter. Something or someone took my gear. The rangers were eager to suggest different trails. King's Peak is hiding something. Where's Curly? Why won't you answer me, Control? I remember uh, reading some history of Florence by that prince guy. Conspiracies to take over the city everywhere. They were dumb, smart, weak, powerful. Some were secret, others public, but almost like too public. It was a red herring, but they weren't actually red herrings. Were the rangers just scared their jobs would go away with the tourists? Or that some crazy archaeologist would ruin the picture-perfect mountains? Maybe I stumbled onto something sacred to the Mormons. Something Joseph Smith described from those golden tablets he wouldn't let others see. Or were the rangers serving the thing? Uh, I, I don't... Something else. Maybe they just thought my pile was trash. Trash laid outside a cave that wasn't there some time ago. Yeah, that's it. Nothing suspicious at all. I'm calling in some vacation time. I need to recover. I'm breaking protocol, but I'm not going to fill out the paperwork and drop it off in this territory. I'm jetting for Missouri the second I'm done with this report. I'm exhausted, but that's what energy drinks are for. I'll make it home. I recommend sending someone to dynamite the whole area. I'll use drop 755 again for the usual stuff. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I need meat. No bones. Jim, Sean, if you guys are listening to this, don't be strangers. Jack Morrow, out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike international license. This episode was written and performed by Ben Wheeler. Audio edited by Ken Dickison. 
Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook. Read articles on superversivesf.com. And wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts or email us at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. No apostrophe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>